0: Welcome to Season 2 Episode 11 of Beyond the Zero. I'm yours Ben, joining me today is Ricky Ducanet.
1: Ricky is a writer, an artist and a poet. She joins us from her home in Washington State. Welcome to the show, Ricky.
2: Hi. Thank you.
1: (laughs) So nice to have you on.
2: It's great. I've always wanted to go to Australia.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We should do a house swap for a while, I think. I'd, I'd love to go to Washington State. So we'll do a house swap one of these days.
2: That's a lovely idea. What an adventure that would be.
1: You grew up in New York. Your father was Cuban, your mother was Russian Jewish. You spent time in Cuba and in Egypt. Can you tell us a bit more about your family and your upbringing?
2: I was very fortunate. I had, yeah, interesting parents um, and a perfectly marvelous father who was very interested in me, very present for me. And he was a great storyteller as was his mother. Um, and the fact that he was, he was a kind of internationalist and um, born in Cuba, and very interested in um, philosophy and psychoanalysis, he's a big reader, had a wonderful library which he shared with me. So I was very lucky as a child because he shared so much with me intellectually, he was very interested in my mind and there were always, from the moment I began to read, great books to read. and we shared libraries at some point when I was older. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for him. And then his mother, who is quite mad, <laughs> and fascinating, and a fabulous, if, if scandalous storyteller. So I think she's also a big part of why I became a writer, ultimately. But I remember she would tell such scandalous stories when I was a little kid, you know, like six years old. And I, rem- I remember my best friend running out of the house, you know, sort of sobbing <laughs> because of my grandmother's stories. <laughs> I guess she gave me also a, a sort of interest in the dark and, um, and a kind of fearlessness when it comes to, to storytelling. Her name is Emelina Carmen Dionisia de las Reyes de Gavillan. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> she's as big and, and complex as her name.
1: And it sounds like just based on that, like I can see where, you, you know, you got your interest in the surreal and the difference in the, um, the eccentric parts of life.
2: So the surreal, I mean, that it was an interesting time in terms of surrealism as it is right now. I mean, it's fabulous. Surrealism has persisted. Um, for many reasons, good reasons, I think it's political engagement, ecological understanding, you know, anti-war, anti-colonialist stance, it's, it's takes on eroticism, now, it's a really interesting thing and, and, um, and I became interested early on because it was big when my parents were young and my mother had, my father gave my mother Salvador Dali's big book called, um, I think it's 50, What is it secrets of magic craftsmanship 50 secrets of magic craftsmanship, which is his take on painting, and it's it's crazy and it's inspired it's it's brilliant and and that was something that I saw at the age of seven. Um, So somehow prepared, I think you know I mean that was my introduction to art in a way. But then I went to the library. I grew up in the Bard College campus in the Hudson Valley. So it's very fortunate in that way as well to grow up in a small college campus. And the, the library was two minutes from the house. And the first time my father took me there, he, he told me to go to the second story stacks because that's where I'd find the books you know, that I would like to read a lot of fiction. And, Poetry and so on. So I, I took this spiral staircase that went up to the second story, stacks, and I had to cross a glass bridge. The floor of which was made of green glass, which meant that the first floor now looked like it was underwater, and it was daunting. And as I stepped off the bridge, I saw this blue spine, this beautiful blue spine of a book, and it was a special kind of robin's a blue, which meant a lot to me at the time. And so the first book I ever took out of the library was that book and I, I, I took it out and it was Misfortunes of the Immortals and it was written by Paul Eluard and illustrated by Max Ernst. And that was like the portal opening big time, I think to the surrealist worldview. I mean, I felt as a kid who loved fairy tales and, and the imagination and wildlife because I kind of grew up in the woods as well. Um, it was, yeah, the portal to, to myself in some way. And yeah, I've always been a big fan of Max Ernst's. That <laughs> you always play with the ladies.
1: <laughs> it's funny saying that story about the library because we were talking before we started recording about um, Jorge briefly, and that story just reminds me completely uh, of something out of Jorge.
2: <laughs> yeah, I feel real kinship with Jorge as well.
1: <laughs> How did you end up spending some time in Egypt when you were a child?
2: So my father, being a college professor, he, he uh, received a Fulbright to go to Cairo to teach for a year. So I ended up going to a British school and uh, where we learned nothing about Egypt and everything about um, England and <laughs> mining in England and things like that. It was um, a very, a very interesting time and place, I walked to school every day through a park, there were, there were no, really no cars in Cairo at the time, um, just a couple of, of taxis, as I recall, you could walk everywhere. Anyway, so that's how I landed up in, in Egypt and got to see all the wonders, maybe not all of them, I think nobody could ever see all of them of that, of that place.
1: I feel like these experiences in your childhood and, and then Bard College as well has really shaped you as a writer. Would that be true to say?
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and as a person, I mean, when I... The, the Bard College campus is very close to the Hudson River and the Hudson River, it's a beautiful river and it goes on forever and there are forests on either side and those forests also go on forever. And when I was a child, the, the entire ecological systems within those forests were, were functioning beautifully, which meant that there were enormous numbers of animals of all kinds and insects of all kinds. So I got to see that wealth of life and it's not like that any longer. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, I'm not alone in my heartbreak. I think we all are more or less longing, you know, and mourning for those losses.
1: Now you live in Washington State, which hopefully is in a better position than over back east, I suppose, in terms of ecology. Living there at the moment, you're writing, you're an artist as well. How does landscape and and the world you live in figure in your art and your writing?
2: I think very profoundly because growing up in that way, uh, I mean, in a world where there were floods, you know, storms of butterflies, literally, this incredible wealth of animals always, my one of my first loves was natural history and, and um, that's maybe the second time around if I get another chance. <laughs> I'd like to to study natural history and, and maybe do a um, kind of you know, art that's devoted to, uh, living things.
1: You were telling me as well before about your, I guess your your painted encyclopedia of things that aren't real based on the another story from Jorge. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that book? Because I'm fascinated by it and now I will have to buy it if I can find a copy.
2: You can find it, um, <laughs> I think somebody will bring it back out. So so Borges, Jorge Luz, one of the greatest writers ever one of the people who's had the biggest impacts on my imagination, really felt such a kinship with him. This beautiful short story, long short story called Talon Okbar Orbis Teresius. And it's about a place that is imagined and um, lands up in one one copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, one one copy is published containing information about Talon Okbar Orbis Teresius, a virtual place but it's virtualities have a tendency to show up in our own world. And you know that they come from Orbis from Teresias because of their incredible weight. Anyway, it's, it's a wonderful story and um, a publisher in Canada, um, Tim Inkster's Press wanted to do it. And so I did, I think it was 22, really illuminations rather than illustrations. So uh, images, for the encyclopedia of Talon Okbar Orbis Teresius. And also did a, a map, which was a fold out within the book, which was really nice. And Borges describes the encyclopedia as, as being blue. And so uh, minster gave it a blue cover. So it's, it is a nice book, but it is out of print. It's hard to find, or I would be happy to send you one. <laughs> really proud of it. And I've, I've been thinking about doing, um, devoting maybe another another version of it, you know, doing another series of illustrations or maybe even doing an entire uh, art exhibit devoted to the maps and the books and the pictures from, from uh, uh, Orbis Teresius. The delightful thing that happened was that I was living in France and the book was published in Canada and I was wondering how I could get a copy to Borges He was still alive, although he was blind, and I. the phone rang, and it was my publisher, and he said, everything, something wonderful has just happened, but everything happened so quickly, we could not bring you here. But I saw in the press that Borges was coming to Canada, and uh, that our book was the only book of Borges' published in Canada. So I contacted Trudeau's office, and I, and they got very excited and said, Send us, I think it was twenty-five copies overnight. Sent and and uh, what happened was they arrived in time, and Borges received his at a luncheon, and was it was described to him by his beautiful young wife, and he was apparently very pleased that there was a fold-out map, and that it was blue in a in a blue cover, and and that I done illuminations rather than illustrations.
0: What a
1: beautiful story! Wow, that's. Yeah. That is
2: happy.
1: Yeah,
0: unbelievable.
1: Well, I think for me, put a fold-out map in a book, and no doubt I'll buy it. I think I think having maps and and, and illuminations, as you said, it makes books so interesting. I I love having those little treasures that you find inside books. I do too. Let's go back to Bard College. Uh, can we talk about your experience meeting? some of the fabulous people over there like Robert Coover.
2: So that, yeah. So that was many years later. Um, uh, my husband at the time was teaching at Bard and at the same time, so I stuck around. (laughs) So the same time, um, that Bob arrived and we became really close friends and, uh, he, he felt that what I was doing with my art was very, this is before I became a writer. Um, he thought that my art, I was dealing with um, anamorphosis, you know, uh, things in transformation a lot. And he felt that because his writing was so much that, um, that we should do something together. So I illustrated some of his books. But he also had some young daughters who I would tell stories to and he, Kept saying you should be writing, you should be writing, and so the first thing I did was a retelling of a fairy tale that I illustrated, the blue the bluebird, um, and gave to his daughters. So it's just a retelling of a fairy tale, and um, I have no idea if it's any good, really. <laughs> but that was that was um, the first yeah time I had something published, and. And then sometime later, I mean, I, I was so involved in illustration and painting, didn't do much writing. And um, and then years later, began to write poetry, kind of to my surprise, really seriously, got involved with that and then had an extraordinary dream. I don't know how old I was. I must've been in my early forties or late thirties. I can't remember exactly, but I had an incredible dream that tossed me out of bed at, I don't know, it was four in the morning. And I started writing my first novel to my surprise and then became a novelist. I just kept working that way for the years to follow.
0: Unbelievable. You spent 20 years
1: in France in the Loire Valley, which is obviously an extremely beautiful place. How was that experience for you culturally and artistically?
2: So that's that's where I became a novelist. I'm not sure if I would have become a novelist elsewhere or certainly not the same novelist. But we were living we were living actually in poverty. I mean we really we we found this fantastic old house that'd been built in the 1700s out of stone. Um, amazingly it's still there I'm doing some repairs right now. <laughs> but it was $1000 and it came with some land. And uh, and a vineyard was available soon after that. That was also affordable. We had, my husband and I had done a children's book and suddenly we had some money. So we bought this little vineyard and the guy who'd been working it was happy to continue working it. um, And um, in exchange, we just wanted some wine for the year, which was a good deal for everybody. And I had this big vegetable garden. So we were we were surviving with the vineyard and the vegetable garden, and at some point became uh, open to studio pottery. So we we're supporting ourselves in, in, in these ways. And uh, my son grew up there, but that's where I started writing. And I think uh, so much of it was being enchanted by living in a village that could have been in the 19th century. At that time, it was very much like a village in the 19th century. And it also reminded me of Alice in Wonderland constantly in unexpected ways. For example, there was a very, very old lady who, was, who had a little grocery store and she sold Tide soap and eggs. That's all she sold. And she had this counter and she would sit behind the counter and, and I'd, I'd go in for my eggs. And she would, she would look at each one and then put it in a box and, then <laughs> and give it to me. Um, It was a sort of magical. And then there was Madame Falou, who was kind of the psychoanalyst of the village. Everybody would go to her for her problems, their problems. And she had cans of sardines that went back to the 19th century. They were very beautiful. They were not for sale, they just were there. Like everybody knew that they were there for decor because you really didn't want to maybe eat a sardine that had been around that long. Anyway, it was it was a magical place and and um, so my first book the stain is so much about that place
1: sounds completely magical <laughs> All right we'll talk about books now because I'm a bit enchanted by by your life but your books obviously the way that I discovered you the most recent book, that is out at the moment is Traffic. It's available from Coffeehouse Press and I read it last year. It's intriguing and it's funny. I loved it. Um, and it's actually the first book I've read of yours and it propelled me to go straight to your back catalogue and read quite a few of your novels. I'm still only three or four in, but they are just magic. I just love them. But on Traffic, could you tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to write about Quiver and Mike?
2: such a mysterious process because first of all I was as just about everybody I know deeply distressed and um, and anxious and angry and frightened by what's happening to our world and this sort of implosion of everything and um, and and going through the Trump years which are now extending themselves within this country and really seeing the rise of not just surprise but the 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 force of fascism in this country which has always been there but it's been much of the time somewhat <laughs> under control anyway I was I was going through a really difficult existential period and what is so surprising is that when I started riding traffic and I was traveling a lot I was I was in airplanes a lot when I was writing that book. Because I was giving some readings and, and so on. It was sort of a busy time. So I was in the air a lot of the time. But what happened was, as always happens to me, actually, these characters showed up. So Mick and Quiver showed up. And they wanted a book. And it was their book, you know. Yeah. And and so suddenly I was writing something that, yeah, you know, it's about the complete vanishment of the world and, and the moon, you know, this these catastrophes have have taken place. It's a sci-fi, it's the first time I write a (laughs) sci-fi, totally unexpected, that they showed up and they started squabbling with one another and there they were in their spaceship called the Wobble. And and I found myself engaged with them and writing um, a a book that is, even if based on acute tragedy, a book all about love and and the erotic and, and it's funny. You know, and I'm just so grateful for them. <laughs> they wake up in the morning, and there they'd be squabbling with one another on on the wobble, and um, and going through the galaxies. And I and I read a lot in science. You know, I'm beginning to read much more in science fiction now. There's so much great stuff out there. But I'm I'm a big reader of science more than science fiction. So I was very surprised, you know, that I found myself in that realm. But it was a it was a heck of a good time writing that thing, especially being in airplanes.
1: It's funny because I read it during the pandemic and it struck me as a perfect pandemic novel because essentially it's about, you know, these two, well, well, one person anyway, and they're isolated on this uh, spaceship, but it's in these short, beautiful chapters. And then it is. It is so funny and so lovely, loving, and it doesn't concentrate on any of the tragedy or any of the sadness around them. It seems to just, you know, those things are in the background, and and their relationship is just the is the foreground of this beautiful, kind of strange um, story.
2: You know, doing a lot of reading in science, I became also very intrigued with the moral dilemma. You know, as AI becomes more Better, <laughs> you know, there's this talk, and not just talk, but I mean, these experiments taking place now of developing sort of robot life. You know, they've got. I think at the moment they're the size of, I don't know, they're really tiny little robotic life forms, but they're they're procreating. This is wild. Um, so wondering about that too. So mixed dilemma is that he's a very advanced AI. And um, and as you know, I mean, he's really so troubled by these existential difficulties that he he really is so human. And and as he says, you know, he suffers, and it, it really annoys him that Quiver gets impatient with him and calls him a gizmo.
1: <laughs> Their relationship—it's—it's it's just. Um it's really warm and funny. And yeah, it's um, anyone who hasn't read it, I think you should go out. I think it was a great place to start with your work. And yeah, as I said, I've been working my way backwards through your work. Um, for those people who are just starting out to read your books, could you give us, I guess, an idea of your overarching themes? Because I think you do have some. And what place you think they should start?
2: So abusive authority always shows up. no patience with abuse of authority and and it shows up all the time in all my books in different forms whether it's in governments or in families it's there there it is you know um and eroticism always shows up um the creative imagination one way or another not just because i depend on it totally when i'm writing that it'll be there for me but um But I've also written about the creative process, like in The Fanmaker's Inquisition, very much about the creative process. Uh, The place of dreams, they're so essential to me because I depend on them when I'm writing. Um, I think also a kind of vision as I'm writing that is very cinematic, because I love cinema and I've been interested in it, I think you probably all have, you know, since childhood. But just very aware of how film is made and very aware that as a writer I um, it's like I'm behind the camera along with other things and and so I often imagine in terms of cinema you know what would this scene look like where would where would I be filming this would I be up in a tree you know would, where would I be around it a corner you know would i be within a forest where would i be filming this what would that look like but i tell you yeah eros and the creative imagination and abusive authority are the things that um, i turn to again and again they always show up in, in new guises
1: and for people starting out with your work is there a place that you think they should start or just dive in anywhere
2: I guess just dive in. I mean, you sort of see, see what's there, what sounds intriguing. But I'm delighted that you like traffic so much and started with that because I feel, in, I mean, very interested in, in storytelling and very interested in lightness, very influenced by Italo Calvino, you know, and the importance of lightness in literature, so getting rid of all extraneous stuff. Um, but I do think in some ways it's also very different from my other work, So that's, yeah, that that makes me happy. I don't know. You know, it's so hard to know. A friend just asked me to give me, give her one of my novels and it was sort of problematic, you know, and I know her, you know, just what what would suit her.
1: You cross kind of a broad cross-section of society in your work as well. Like from what I've read, there are children, there are families, there are other, you know, quite a lot of other things going on in this new book. But, yeah, they are quite diverse, aren't they?
2: Yeah. they tell, I, My experience always is that a book pounces and, and um, invariably a, a, a character, says, there's a voice that, that is there and it's demanding a book. I mean, like, and it can be very uncomfortable. Like at one point, my, this was my second novel, um, a French Nazi showed up demanding a book, which meant I had to get rid of him. And the only way I could get rid of him was writing his book. You know, and, and which meant doing some extremely painful research, you know. But, uh, but the energy was there. And what happened to my surprise was he begins the book, you know, Nazi speaking. But then the next chapter, his father is speaking. And his father turns out to be one of the fathers of cloning, so I, find my, I found myself thrust into research about cloning, and discovered that the father of cloning actually was in that part of the Loire Valley where where I was living. And so there were there were numerous people I could go to to talk to about cloning and, and learn about it, and had some amazing experiences. I depend a lot on synchronicity. Um, that way, I feel real kinship also with surrealism. That I depend on dreams, and I depend on synchronicity when I'm writing. And it serves me really well. I find that when I'm in need of something, often I'll overhear that conversation or I'll stumble upon that particular book or um, or a, a dream, I'll wake up from a dream and that dream has told me exactly what direction I need to go, you know? all It all sounds very woo woo, but that's one of the things that fascinated me about the australian aboriginal peoples because of their profound connection to dream and the idea that the dream is where the soul goes at night you know it's the soul the soul's experience it's such a sort of a beautiful idea but i count so much of my dreams in the first novels especially my first 10 years of writing i was dreaming all the time and i'd awaken in the morning and always write in the morning because I'd been given all these directions (laughs) during the evening. Wow.
1: Do you want to talk to us really briefly about your new novella?
2: So it's called The Plotinus. And uh, and that, um, I'm looking for it. What happened with The Plotinus is that I woke up, with this sentence. So I'm gonna read you the first sentence. Um, Agitated and pressed for time, I grabbed the knobby stick, a harmless memento of the footpath now long gone that had for a time provided access to the woods such as they were and ran into the street unprepared for the inevitable encounter, such a dope with a botanus. So I mean, I literally kicked out of bed, you know, hearing that sentence and started writing and um, and then continue writing and coincidentally my publisher called me that day and I said I think I've just re- written my best paragraph ever <laughs> and it came to me basically in a dream and he said read it to me so I read it to him and he said okay let's go for next September <laughs> I hadn't written the book yet <laughs> Um, was that was a lovely beginning for it to feel that wow somebody was that interested in it but it just kept writing itself I mean I've, I really do feel I have never been that close to a form of automatic writing as writing the Plotinus because I, I, wor- I worked every morning and every morning it was just ready to go that voice was so strong it was so powerful and it just told me where Yeah, where we were going, what the journey was going to look like. It just kept surprising me. I feel like it's an adventure each time. I don't want to know where it's going. That's the wrong part of the brain. I want it to be a revelation always. I want it to reveal itself to me always.
1: Much like traffic, this is set in a world that is at some point in the future after something bad has happened.
2: It's hard to know exactly. I mean, he he refer, it's a prison of a kind, but he refers to it as a closet. I think he himself isn't really quite sure what it is exactly, but he's total in total isolation. And and the only the only bit of light comes from an air vent that he can reach on tiptoe. And he's and he's knuckling the air vent with his story. So and he has this 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 kind of language which he was using with his friends, clearly, you know, to hope that he reaches somebody out there with his story. And so the whole damn thing is being knuckled on the air vent. And the only light that he has comes through the air vent. And what's going to happen in the book is that apart from the bulletinus, I think it's very likely that everything there is in his mind, that he's imagining an entire universe and um, because he's in total isolation and he's in big trouble because there's no way out and the only adventure and you probably have not gotten there yet that is real is this eroticized hornet that appears through the air vent and so it's also a story of mad love hmm. he's the love interest <laughs> <He's a> beautiful <laughs> hornet <laughs>
1: wow. Okay. And that,
2: you know, that was what happened was that while he was knuckling the air vent, <laughs> such a crazy story, um, he got stung. And, and that was not something that I planned. And then, of course, a hornet appeared soon after that. And, and she's fallen to the floor, and he brings her back, you know, and this relationship begins. And I just had so much fun.
1: Wow. Okay. And when can people expect to read that? September?
2: So, um, well, things have, have shifted at the publishers, but it's, it's scheduled, they're working on scheduling right now because what's, it, it should be very soon. It should be this coming spring or early summer, but it's going to be the first novella. It's very short, the first novella in a series of novellas uh, that, that they'll be publishing at coffee house.
1: Wow, okay, looking forward to it. Um, It's
2: tiny, it's like, what, 50 pages? It's not even a novella, it's an (laughs) novelette. (laughs) (laughs) Novellaette.
1: Would you like to read something for us?
2: Oh, I'd love to. Shall I read you that the opening of the Plotinus?
1: Yeah, that would be great.
2: Agitated and pressed for time, I grabbed the knobby stick. A harmless memento of the footpath, now long gone, that had for a time provided access to the woods such as they were, and ran into the street unprepared for the inevitable encounter, such a dope, with the Plotinus. A shriek later and my knobby stick was reduced to dust, along with my shoes and socks, my coveralls, these losses accompanied by a blinding light, ear pain impossible to articulate, and my arrest. Secluded in a closet, it's air vent accessible on tiptoe. I relate this in code using my knuckles against the grid to whoever will listen. Very few can possibly decipher, decipher my desperate wrappings, but the one who does will be the right one. Even in good times when we would set off for the woods together with our knobby sticks to bury the birds as they fell from the sky, we were not many. They tell me that my transgressions, if merely phenomenological, are punishable by a public scouring. And so I live each day thankful for what I have, although what I have, apart from my threadbare aspirations, is only the sack. If given a chance, I will request another, not because I like it, but because the one I have, if it conceals my apertures as the powers would have it, leaves my knees and legs bare. If and when my request is gratified, one must remain hopeful. I will ask for my socks back or preferably a new pair. I like to imagine the socks are brought to me in a white cardboard box and that they are wrapped in white tissue paper stamped with the manufacturer's name, Mothwing. Each night before sleep, such as it is, the box appears as if by enchantment and I whisper, Here you are, praise destiny. I open the box very slowly and I take my time with the paper too. Sometimes I fall asleep even before I see the socks. The first pair of socks I received were yellow, a transgressive color, so like the sun, so like the yolk of an egg. If it came to be known that I owned a pair of yellow socks, the color of an evil star, of the yolk of an egg, the tangible proof of procreation, it would be all over. The yellow socks warmed my feet, and that first night I slept until a thin ribbon of light made its way into the closet, awakening me. Looking down at my feet at once, I saw that the socks were gone. A good thing, as had the vector appeared, he would have seen them at once and then, but this did not happen. The socks are programmed to dissolve at the break of light. A mere whisper is enough to stimulate their dissolution. I do not know if in the long run the process will adversely affect my feet. Between you and me, things would be so much better all around if I could keep the socks and be provided with a second sack. So that's the opening of the Plotinus.
0: We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. Our guest is Ricky Ducanay. This episode is sponsored by the Beijing Winter Olympics. We've had plenty of snow, the Uyghur people are loving it, and there's Peng Shui in the audience. Come to China, visit china.com. We're back on Beyond the Zero. Our guest is Ricky Dukunay.
1: Shall we move on to your gateway books? So we already talked about one of them. What are some of the other books that open the world of literature for you?
2: Um... Oh, my gosh, there's so many. So I'd have to say Lewis Carroll. Alice in Wonderland. That's, you know, uh, that's a big one. And, and that's a book that I, I reread a lot. And, and the, the book I mentioned, yeah, Salvador Dali's. Um, Kafka, when I discovered Kafka, that was an absolutely enormous, you know, explosion of excitement. Um, Borges. And Kafka, I think, led me to Borges and and Borges translated Kafka and there's a wonderful story about that actually, but it was Borges' work translating Kafka that really led to Borges being Borges. And it's interesting if you read the early fictions, Fictionis, um, you can see a number of them, a kind of extending out of of, uh, Kafka's vision. Uh, taking it elsewhere, but and very much taking it elsewhere as Borges, but you can see the connections. Um, Nabokov, Nololito is really important to me. And it's a book I returned to when I was writing about the Marquis de Sade, um, book in which Saad is a character and I was, that was a companion book. I, I think it just, it just kept giving me permission, I think, to be writing about such a scandalous figure. I was rereading yeah, Nabokov, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Robert Coover. Robert Coover was really important. His his fiction was very important too, very inspiring. But Bob, when I, I, I left for France, he sent me a, a box full of books, a sort of care package of books and Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude was in there. And so, That book, I mean, I think it's influenced everybody who's, every writer who has read it. It's enormous impact at the time, and I think it continues, Um, but then um, also that had me reading all the writers of the boom closely and feeling a real kinship. And I realized that there was something, the feeling of kinship, not because only the work is so marvelous and exciting, but, but there was something of my Latina background that was responding. You know that there was a a sense of kinship there, but also Bob sent me and and that really triggered everything I think um, was William Gass's omen setters luck. Which I consider I continue to think of as as the greatest of American novels omen setters Luck* it's just it's an extraordinary book. I got to meet him many years later, and, and we became very close friends, it was one of the most magical friendships of my life I miss him (laughs) fabulous creature and then and then Calvino more recently and and Clarice Lispector
1: yeah we were talking earlier before we started recording about Clarice Lispector and I think that your writing when I first experienced it just gave me those feelings that I, I first had when I read her and um but what great company for you to you know open your world of literature.
2: It's so interesting, you know, when you, the the kind of sympathies that you feel, you know, and Clarice Spector, I I felt just, um, this is my tribe, you know, she's part of my tribe. That's such closeness.
1: Let's talk about the books you're currently reading and the books you're looking forward to.
2: You know, there's a book I keep returning to um, that you would love, actually. Um, Her name is Fausia Karimi and she was born in Afghanistan and the book is called "Above Us the Milky Way," which he also illustrated. And I really think it's one of the great books. I think that I think it could have been a um, hundred years of you know had the impact of a hundred years of solitude if if the moment in, in literature and politics had um, provided you know a, a kind of tribal force coming in from from that world but it's a book that's making its way reader by reader and um and i i think it's one of those books that's going to be around for a very long time it's what what she has done is take her family history so she she was one of god is it possible there were five sisters I keep finding that (laughs) so immense so family of five daughters little little daughters they leave Afghanistan the day that they learn uh, her father will be arrested which means not only taken but tortured to death and her brilliant mother manages to find the right person to give her passports for the entire family she does that within a day which means that they get out just in time and they land up in California. Um, and now she's now she's in, in, in Texas. She worked on this book, I think it was around 10 years and it's a book that is both a memoir and, and a novel, um, a collection of stories, a kind of philosophical existential inquiry into the nature of the world. Um, beautifully inventive, she's given herself permission to imagine the dreams and thoughts of the other sisters. So she's given herself a lot of room. She is also giving a lot of attention to those who died. So those in her family who were killed by the Taliban, um, the Russians, (laughs) just war everywhere. Um, And she is devoting the book also to them, to the dead who can no longer speak. The book is very beautiful, it also is fearless, which means Fazia writes about violence in ways that I think are most unusual. She has incredible courage, she's a deeply poetic imagination, but also um, real muscle. I mean, she's she's a powerful, powerful thinker and writer. And I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm just blown away by this book and it's a book you can start at the beginning and read to the end. But it's it's also a book you can go into at any moment, and I, I found myself having read it through, wanting to do just that. You know, just it's like dipping into a chocolate box. You know, it's just I just feel like going back to Fausia's book ever, and seeing where I land. I'm Sounds show it fascinating. You. I've got it here. She designed it.
0: Oh, it's beautiful! Wow. Isn't that yeah.
2: A bookseller friend sent it to me and I opened the package and I gasped. It's the most beautiful book I've ever seen. This must be amazing. And then it's full of her very beautiful illustrations. I'll tell you about it sometime. We've got a plan. We're, We're doing a book together. Wow. What's uncanny is that our, our illustrations are incredibly alike. And I'll just say this that when when I received the book, I had just finished doing a series of illustrations for a friend's book, I and mean, the illustrations were all when you put diverse things together that don't belong together, so they were they were um, like bird people or bird mammals. So I had just finished doing all this all these drawings, and then I get this book, and I open it up to this page. Can you see it?:
0: Yeah. Oh, wow.
1: It's got little ears. Okay.
2: <laughs> it's a bird with human ears. <laughs> <laughs> so very much in the nature of what I just said. So, so it's a sisterhood that's going on here. Um, so that, but I'm also rereading, have you ever read Roberto Colasso?
1: No, he's been on my list for a while, but I've never read oh, him.
2: Oh, you're in for such a treat. He died recently and I've been in mourning. That's the way I felt when Calvino died. I just so miss Calvino, <laughs> even though I never met him. I just so miss that he's, you know, I think he's not on the planet any longer with us. And I feel this way about Roberto Calasso. So I've been rereading, I've um, got it here actually, I'm reading. I'm gonna be rereading everything like, but I'm re- rereading The Celestial Hunter. So Calasso, this is another one, The first book of his, I mean, he has a whole bunch of books in there. Each one is more marvelous than the next. He's a marvelous storyteller, wonderful writer, deeply attentive, thoughtful mind. He did a retelling. It's called The The Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony. So the retelling of the Greek myths beginning at the beginning. And, And it's a whole family tree of myths. So you watch the myths, transform and grow and the gods transform and grow. And, and then he does the same thing in Ka, which is um, Hindu mythology up to Buddhism and the retelling of the myths are, are fabulous. And he, and he does these marvelous asides as he's telling the story. So you learn a lot about the culture and it's dreamy, inspired stuff.
0: We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. Our guest is Ricky Dukone. This episode is brought to you by Australian Border Force. Tough on borders, children and tennis players since 2015. We're back on Beyond the Zero, it's time for Ricky's Top 10.
2: I would have to say at this point that Fauzia's book is definitely in that list of top 10. Oh, I don't know if I can do top 10. <laughs> um, I'd say even, you know, it's hard, specific books. Alice is easy, but I, but even there, it would be Through the Looking Glass. Yeah. I love Alice in Wonderland, but my real favorite is Through the Looking Glass, but you can't really separate them out. Um, Kafka, just anything of Kafka's, anything of, of, of Borges. Um, Lolita probably is one of my favorite books. Definitely, I mentioned William Gass's Omen Setter's Luck, that's definitely on top. Calvino, yeah, Cosme Comics, Calvino's Cosme Comics. And actually I, was, I felt when I was writing Traffic, I felt like Calvino was in the room. You know, I was thinking of Cosmic Comics. Just, it's so wonderful, and um, I, it's, I certainly don't mean that literally. <laughs> you know, but but um, I think sometimes one sort of leans into the energy, you know, of, of another book, another writer, and and um, and I kind of felt that haunting as I was as I was writing it. It was sort of. Um, almost as if we were in conversation somehow. But that book too, yeah, I felt like I was in good hands. It was, it was also telling me where it wanted to go. And I was trusting that. I mean, I was very much just wanting to kind of wing it in those airplane trips, you know, literally wing it and see where it would take me. The song lines I haven't read in a long time, but that certainly was a very important book for me at one time. But yeah, those, are, those names, you know, keep coming forth. I do return to the writers I love, especially.
1: Before we go, where can we find you online and where can we buy your wonderful books?
2: So if you go to rickiducornet.com, there's probably more information than you need. It's just packed with information. <laughs> it's very easy, you know, to just have it all there available to people. So yeah, so that has uh, lists all my books. And, you know, they're, they're available, I think, probably, you know, they can be ordered in bookstores. I mean, obviously, Amazon has everything, which is terrifying. (laughs) But (laughs) it's it's all there I mean what's so nice about Amazon is that there yeah everything is there and you can kind of see what's available and you know and then you can go to your bookstore and order it
1: thank you so much for joining me and chatting about books and your amazing life and I really look forward to reading all of your future work
2: thank you it was so much fun it was delightful talking with you
0: Thanks once again to Ricky Ducanet. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back for your next episode next week.